The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. During war, there isn't electricity for people to watch TV, so they rely more on radios. And yes, mainly everyone, especially at that time, the older generation and like the politicians, the uh, elite class, all of those people, they all listen to the BBC. That was Wissam El Sayer talking about the history of the BBC Arabic network. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Huna London, Sayyidati Wasadati. Nahnu Nudio Lioma in London.
عن أسماع الكثيرين منكم. Hello and welcome to History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. The clip you just heard was the very first broadcast on BBC Arabic, the BBC's first non-English language service, launched back in January 1938. 80 years later, and BBC Arabic is still going strong, reaching an audience of 43 million people through radio, TV and online. To find out more about the network's fascinating history, I paid a visit to New Broadcasting House in London, where I spoke to Wissam El Sayer, BBC Arabic's communications advisor, and someone who spent a decade and a half broadcasting on the service. We're this year celebrating the 80th anniversary of, of BBC Arabic. So going back to 1938, what was the reasons that this network first came about? Actually, it started way before that. Like in the 1930s, uh, there was increasing concerns that German and Italian propaganda was impacting powerfully on the Middle East via its effective shortwave transmissions. This was validated by the British government's Alswater Committee in 1935, which recommended the expansion of the empire service into languages other than English. And that's how Arabic started in 1938. Although in 1938, Arabic started in a very short a bulletin and a very limited broadcast of 65 minutes, which was expanded later uh, in 1940 to two bulletins and the reading of Quran in the morning. And so obviously there, there was been a connection right at the start with British diplomacy and what the BBC Arabic is doing. Has that relationship kind of continued over the years? How does BBC Arabic work alongside what the British government is doing in the Middle East? Well, from the very first bulletin, BBC Arabic maintained its impartiality, just as the wider BBC. And there was like there was a debate about how to position BBC Arabic among services or among even even uh, like the word service or English. And uh, there was much soul searching inside and outside the BBC about the position, positioning of the new services, which were Arabic and later that year, uh, um, Latin American. Uh, and what was spoken at that time, that they should not be propaganda or anti-propaganda, but reliable news, just as the BBC. John Reith, BBC Director General, was very clear about this, and it was reiterated by the then Councillor of Exchequer, Sir John Simon, when he addressed the House of Commons in the late 1937. He stated that BBC had been invited to provide broadcast news service to the Middle East in Arabic, but that the BBC would have the same full responsibilities and duties as were laid down by its charter in respect for its existing services. So, obviously, the Arab world is very diverse, and people may speak different versions of Arabic. So how did the BBC position the Arabic? Was it aimed at any particular parts of the Arab world or was it intended to be very broad? And The limitation was not the language when BBC started broadcasting. The limitation was the way it was broadcasted because it was only broadcasted on short waves. Uh, uh, later, it began to broadcast on medium waves and now digital and <laughs> FM. But in terms of language, BBC Arabic... Uh, relied on the classical Arabic language, which is known by all Arabs in the 22 Arab countries and Arabs around the world. Uh, it's the language of Quran for Arabs, or for Muslims, actually, not for Arabs, but uh, also it is the classical language that children are uh, been taught at school. No matter what country you come from or what dialect or accent you have, you will understand classical Arabic. 
Which kind of people were broadcasting on BBC Arabic early on? Was it British people or was it Arabic people? Definitely it was Arabic people who did the broadcasts and the translations at that time. Um, maybe the, the higher management editors, it was English, and they used to translate dispatches from uh, the English service, and they used to follow the editorial lines of the BBC English. However, of course, the broadcasters uh, themselves, they are Arabic. The first broadcaster ever in 1938, on the 3rd of January 1938, was Ahmad Kamal Surur. He was the first one who went out on BBC Arabic. There was a group of journalists, students, um, and even poets, authors, writers. A lot of Arab intellectual people worked in the BBC throughout the years. And do we know what kind of reception BBC Arabic had in the Arab world when it launched? We don't have exact uh, numbers or, uh, or accurate audience research about when BBC Arabic started. But what we know is that very soon after it was launched, it was very reliable at it won- as it wanted to be. A lot of people listened to it. I know my grandparents used to listen to it. I used to listen to it with my grandparents. If you meet anyone in the BBC Arabic, they will tell you that their grandparents used to listen to it. And <laughs> that's how it goes. So it's, there isn't any accurate numbers, but we know that it was very widespread and very well listened to. And do we know how different BBC Arabic was from what the, the broadcasting of the Arab countries themselves? Was there something that set it apart? from because, because they were speaking Arabic. What was different about BBC Arabic to say, what you know, the... Jordanian or the Syrian or the Egyptian, what their own radio was doing? Well, at that time, there wasn't as much radios as today. Also, uh, the, the aim of BBC Arabic was to bring, from the beginning, to bring the word to the region, to let the people in the region to know the news all over the world, not only what's happening around them. Maybe it was one of the very few, if not the only, source that gave them this wide range of news, especially from London, from the heart of London. And that's where it comes. The first, the first, the very first phrase that was said on air was Hona London, which means here is London. And people in the Arab world knows BBC Arabic as London station. Till very recently, they started calling it BBC Arabic. It was called all over the Arab world, London Station, Hona London. <laughs> and over the, the past 80 years, obviously, Britain has been involved in many different ways in the Middle East, foreign policy, economic policy, things like that. Has that affected BBC Arabic at all or how people have regarded the BBC in the Middle East? I, I believe that the BBC has always maintained uh, to stay impartial and uh, accurate as much as we can and has always followed our guidelines in terms of providing uh, reliable and challenging news to the Arab world. Has the British government ever tried to use BBC Arabic to help it with its um, diplomatic goals? I, I, don't, I don't recall any certain incidents, but what I can assure you, same as other BBC, mm. BBC Arabic will always follow its guidelines and it will never be uh, the voice of any government we will be the eyes and ears of our audiences wherever they are. And as always, we want to be impartial, fair and balanced. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia housing and see how home helps everyone. Who are some of the really important figures in the history of BBC Arabic? Are there any broadcasters or people that really help define the network? Well, there is a lot of notable moments and uh, high-profile figures that broadcasted over the years. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the exact dates mm. of this because our archive, when we moved from tapes to uh, digital and over the years, our archive is still not gathered altogether. However, hopefully one day we will have it all digitalized and together. But what I can tell you, like Prince Faisal of Saudi Arabia has addressed his father through BBC Arabic in 1943. We still have this clip in our mm. archive. Uh, we moved it. Uh, King Farouk of Egypt, he addressed his people on the occasion of ascending the throne uh, as well. Uh, we had famous thinkers like Taha Hussein and Najib Mahfouz, who was a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, also, uh, Nasser, Jamal Abdel Nasser, that we had a very, very interesting interview with him in BBC Arabic. And there was an English interview, maybe the only or the first, actually, in English interview, which was broadcast by BBC English with Jamal Abdel Nasser. Also, his resignation and his uh, nationalization of Suez Canal, that all went uh, on BBC Arabic. Of course, later, you know, like the 70s, there was many interviews with Yasser Arafat, President Mubarak, uh, other presidents, key moments in the uh, history of the Arab world. We always were there to report. Have any other countries attempted to do something similar to BBC Arabic or is it, is it unique? I believe that BBC Arabic is the only tri-media uh, channel or have tri-media outputs in the Arabic uh, world. We have other satellite channels, um, TVs, pan-Arab TVs uh, or radios now, but none have the three services like BBC Arabic, none have the three outputs actually, like online radio and TV at the same time. And none have the history or the same goals as BBC Arabic. Wissam, you've worked for quite a long time um, in, in BBC Arabic. Can you tell us a bit about your own experiences how you how you came to network and the kind of things you've done? Well, I started with the BBC Arabic. My my very first experience with BBC, I was chosen to come to uh, a training course. It was a Middle East and North Africa dialogue in uh, early 2004 with the Trust at that time, which is Media Action now. And at that time, I, I was introduced to the BBC and other uh, UK outlets as well. Later that year, I was recruited by the BBC. I worked as a producer in the radio. Uh, I started as a producer in the radio. At that time, we didn't have TV. We had only radio and online, which was launched in 1998. 
uh, March 1998. It's our 20th anniversary for online this year. And uh, what I did, I produced programs, uh, current affair programs. I worked in news and then I was um, uh, I went to Lebanon on a vacation. And at that time, the war uh, between Hezbollah and Israel started in 2006. And I was the only correspondent on the ground. So um, and the first bombing was near my house, actually. So I called in and I reported the war for 33 uh, days from Lebanon in 2006. Later in 2007, I also reported the clashes in Nahr al-Barid between uh, Fatah al-Islam and the Lebanese army. In 2008, we launched the TV. I was among the team that worked on launching the TV and I was their first correspondent to Baghdad that year. I stayed there for only like four or five months, came back here to work with the programs, produced around uh, three or four documentaries. One of them was in West Africa about the relation between Israel, Hezbollah, Iran and Lebanon in that part of the world and about blood diamonds and how they use diamonds to buy weapons. After that, as I worked on my own cultural show, I presented it from all over the world, bringing cultural and art stories to our Arab world. And I, I, I wanted our audience to see what they can't see on other channels, on other Arabic channels. I wanted to give them a, a unique experience, a, a different way of telling the story, of living the story and letting art and music talk about the countries. After that, um, I launched Extra TV. It was a radio program and I transferred it into a, a TV program. And this is part of reaching more audiences and our younger audience, which nowadays watch TV and mainly now they only <laughs> watch mobile and digital news. And at the moment, I'm the communication advisor at BBC Arabic and still a senior journalist who work across platforms as a editorial coordinator. So you've, you've been out, obviously, in the Middle East um, working for BBC Arabic. So have you met people there who listen to BBC Arabic and what, what impressions of the network have they given you? What do they tell you about it? Well, we are, as you know, we are considered a crisis media. People listen to us in crisis to get the accurate and reliable news they want. And yes, when I was in Lebanon, for example, because as you know, during war, there isn't electricity for people to watch TV. So they rely more on radios. And yes, mainly everyone, especially at that time, the older generation and like the politicians, the uh, elite class, uh, all of those people, they all listen to the BBC. They rely on the BBC. Even it was in my country, in Lebanon, uh, if someone wants to emphasize that what he's saying is the truth, he would tell you, I've heard that on the BBC. And of course, they mean BBC Arabic because mm. that's what they listen to. And my grandfather is still listening to the BBC. Obviously, several countries in the Middle East and Arab world, they don't have a free press or free media. So is that does that give BBC a kind of make it distinctive because do people feel they can trust it more because the government, like you say, it is impartial. The government don't tell it what to say. The BBC not taking parts or not giving our own opinions. You know, everyone might have their own personal opinions, but we leave them outside when we come to this building. And the BBC being impartial, fair and balanced, wouldn't take the side of any government or any uh, political group or party. This might lead to criticism at some points because some parties want you to, to, to say their point of view. But we never do that. We are, uh, we are not a platform for anyone. What we do is we just report the news the way it is and we leave it to people to judge. 
in your experience, are there times where you, you have to tell your audiences things they won't like because it isn't telling them what their view of things? To be honest, most of the time they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one would like it all the time. And if, if you say the truth the way it is, mm. you will be crit- criticized by both sides. And we are always criticized from both parties in any conflict because we are not saying what they want to hear. We are saying what's going on. Maybe they want us to be uh, to lean more towards their point of view. But uh, this is not our aim and this is not the way we work. And so um, just finally, what, what do you see as a future for BBC Arabic then? In BBC Arabic, we aim to be the most distinctive trustworthy and challenging journalism in Arabic, in the Arab world. Actually, this is our mission statement. And I think we are working on that every day. Every day we learn from our mistakes. We work more. We look into the future. We are trying to reach more audiences. Now we are trying to reach audiences, young audiences in different parts, in parts that we haven't reached before, like the Gulf or North Africa or any other place in the world. So what we aim to is uh, to keep our audiences that we have right now and to reach new audiences as well. That was Wissam El Sayer. And you can find out more about BBC Arabic on bbcarabic.com. And that is about all for today. But please do join us again on Thursday when we'll be finding out about the Terracotta Warriors. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 